This is Recovery Revolution Live. The episode that you're about to hear is live and unedited. If you're interested in watching the live stream, head over to facebook.com slash recoveryrevolution100. We record a new episode every Monday night starting at 7 p.m. Central Time. All right, what is going on, guys? You have tuned into another episode of Recovery Survey Live. I'm Brett, and I'm going to be your host tonight, as long uh, as well as Jr. Excited to have you guys on the show. As a reminder, if you guys are interested, we also release the audio version of tonight's show as a podcast that drops about an hour or so after the live video is over. And I also have another podcast called Recovery Survey that are about 30-minute episodes, and those come out every Wednesday. So if you're already on the podcast app, go ahead and subscribe to that one as well. And if you want to help us out, it would be really cool if you guys would leave us a review and uh, and a five five-star review that really helps us. When people are searching for recovery podcasts or searching for content, it helps us show up. So that's a little something you can do to help us uh, grow the show and uh, help spread the message of recovery. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and switch to this three-person view and bring on tonight's guest, Kate. And she is a RN. She works. She's a columnist at the Sober Curator. She does a lot of awesome stuff. So welcome to the show, Kate. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you on the show. Oh, great. If you wouldn't mind, maybe we could just jump in and you could tell us a little bit about your story and kind of give us an idea of, of who you are. Sure, yeah. So, yeah, my name's Kate. I live in Olympia, Washington. Um, my sobriety date is 2-10-18, so I... I am getting close to four years sober um, in February. It'll be four years. Yeah. You can, I'm not counting, right? I'm not counting, <laughs> but yes, I'm counting. Um, so, gosh, I, I could, I feel like I could talk forever, but I'll just kind of give you the cliff notes. Um, I basically got sober in the rooms of AA. Um, I, I found some local meetings. And I was desperate. I was completely desperate. I was completely broken. And I um, started going to AA. I got a sponsor. And I went to AA, like, I can't even, I think every day for a couple of years. Um, and I recently started going to meetings that were sort of open forum. Sure. Um, on meetings. Um, and I recently started going to There's a little feedback there. Got Sorry, it. Okay. I went ahead and muted you, JR. You're giving us a little feedback. Oh, I'm like, that's me. Um, yeah, so I recently started going to some online meetings um, when the pandemic hit. Um, but if you want me to walk back into my story of um, sort of active addiction and what brought me to recovery, I'd be happy to do that. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Okay. So... I started drinking sort of late. Um, I think I started drinking in my mid-20s, probably like maybe 24. I was an RN. I was married. I was sort of an overachiever type. Um, you know, I wanted to accomplish. I had this list of all these things I wanted to accomplish as, a, as an adult. And um, I sort of found some... Um, 
I, I found some solace and in, in wine uh, in in my mid twenties. I was working hospital work, and uh, I began drinking sort of socially. And you know, I look back now, and I know that it was uh, maybe some self medicating for being sort of a perfectionist and um, having a lot of anxiety and a lot of depression and things that I was kind of hiding. And basically stupid expectations that I set for myself. Um, and um, I also struggled with disordered eating. Um, I was restricting. I was over-exercising. Um, I was just beating myself up with all these expectations. So I found wine and that was my, you know, my way to chill. And um I was sort of a late bloomer. So I had to like ask friends, like, how do you even order wine and what do you drink? And I didn't even know how to like fit in the social scene. And um, my social drinking um, turned into problematic drinking fairly soon. I could, I couldn't really ever tolerate it. I couldn't really, I was never a good drunk. I was never um, someone that was all that fun you know, going out, I got drunk quick. Uh, I blacked out a lot. I got sick a lot. Um, I ruined the party a lot. Um, so it was, it was a problem from the beginning. And I only can say that sort of with some hindsight. Um, and I, I drank through my 20, late twenties, my thirties got to be pretty problematic. Um, I had left bedside nursing and went into pharmaceutical sales, which has a heavy drinking culture. I did a lot of traveling, uh, domestic travel. So I was all over, lots of airplanes, airports, meetings. Drinking was heavily encouraged. Um, and I was never a good drinker. Like I just, I was always an amateur. And um, so in my 30s, I got I got more, I, I guess I would say my drinking became, my problems became more noticeable because um, a lot of it was like a public display. So you have sort of a witness to your horrible behavior. Um, and I can honestly say in my 30s, I really developed a pretty strong addiction to alcohol, physiologically, uh, psychologically, um, emotionally, you know, like it became my crutch. And I think I, you know, I'm sad to say in the end, I thought of wine as like my best friend. You know, it was my social lubricant. It was the way that I felt cool and relaxed and funny and relevant. And of course I wasn't any of those things while intoxicated. Um, so by the end of my thirties, I had some real consequences and, you know, what they say, like when they're witnessed consequences, like when someone is present for your horrible behaviors, it's sort of hard to go back from that because someone saw and someone was there. And I remember there was a time when I was in Vegas and I, um, I drank so much, I got alcohol poisoning. Um, later on in my thirties, I ended up getting a DUI I was speeding and um, coming home from a concert like at two in the morning and I blew like a high blow DUI, you know, just things started stacking up and I was in really big denial. Um, I did not want to face the fact that I could 
you know, be addicted to alcohol and that it just was not my friend. I did not want to face that. And by the end of my 30s, I had so many horrible consequences. I think I had been hospitalized for alcohol poisoning uh, maybe three or four times. And I just, you know, I went to the emergency room with just like having blacked out and just gotten super sick. And my family started to rally around me. And, um, you know, of course, during this time, I'm also a really bad employee, right? I'm not, I'm giving my employers like 20, 30% of what I'm capable of. And um, gosh, my family kind of staged like a traditional intervention, which we now know doesn't really work. But at the time, you know, they were sort of desperate. And so they got together. And I just remember thinking like, who are you guys to tell me to quit drinking? Like I was so, I was in so much denial. And I even, I remember my, my grandma even drove me to an AA meeting and I was just like, no, I wasn't having it. Um, and I, by the time I was late thirties, I had, I had divorced and remarried and um, I'm, you know, to my current husband and he didn't realize, I don't think, how bad it was, despite the fact that my family had sort of warned him several times. And so in the first year of our marriage, I was a complete mess. I was going through the physical manifestations of addiction. I was going through withdrawal with if I didn't drink. And I would try so hard to quit drinking. I would be able to go two weeks and then I would go binge. Uh, sometimes I would make it almost 30 days and then binge. I was losing job after job. Um, I was back into bedside care and nursing because of the DUI. Uh, nobody in pharmaceuticals would hire me anymore because I couldn't drive a leased vehicle. So, you know, I'm just kind of like destroying my life. And um, I think the best way I can describe it, and I've said this before, is that quote by Anne Lamont, like I was deteriorating faster than I could lower my standards. You know, it was just one thing after the other. And I was becoming someone I didn't recognize. And my family was just disgusted with me. And my my new husband was like appalled that this was the woman that he had married. And toward the very end, I remember I was super proud of myself because I went cold turkey and quit drinking and I lasted six months. And during this time, I I didn't know about AA. I didn't know about re recovery resources. And you would think that a nurse would know these things, but I but nurses are just really not trained in this type of, of stuff. And, and unless they work in psychiatric medicine, um, you just don't even, it's not on your radar. So I was working a job in home health. I was super proud of myself that I had quit drinking. And my some of my nurse friends recommended that it would probably be a smarter idea for me to take up smoking marijuana because there would be no hangover and I wouldn't be like calling out sick to work and really screwing up my life. So I, I started smoking marijuana for the first time in like my late 30s and it just never really helped, but it was something, right? And as someone who was a pretty bad addict, like I, I couldn't imagine just living a life totally sober. So I'm smoking marijuana at night. I'm showing up at work. I feel like I'm hanging in there. Six months go by. 
and I'm in an auto accident in the field going to see a client in home health. And um, my employer wanted to do an incident report. And of course that came with a drug screen. And I was really scared that I was gonna show, um, turn up positive for THC because nurses are not supposed to smoke marijuana. So that was my fear, right? Of all the things that I had done, oh my God. And so I had a really awesome idea to bring in fake urine to the drug screen and try to pass the test that way. And I look back, I just, I'm like, I'm embarrassed even talking about this, but I look back and I can't even believe. So I brought in fake urine, but I dropped it in front of the person collecting the specimen. And so I was just totally busted right there. I was completely like, here I am out in the open. I told her what I had done. I got instantly fired. I also got reported to the nursing commission for tampering with a drug screen. And so I got put in a program for nurses that's sort of like drug court, where you get to keep working as long as you meet all these, you know, buckets of compliance. And it's it's pretty rigorous, right? Like they require random UAs and that you go to treatment and that you go to meetings and that you you really do it. Otherwise, they pull you from the field and you can't work. And it was horribly embarrassing because to this day, I have these red letters on my name. And so I'm hoping if you Google me, like this type of stuff comes up and not like my horrible past. Anyway, um, but you know, my past is what made me, so it doesn't matter. But yeah, so I got put into um, a professional program for, for nurses with substance use issues, and that's a five-year commitment. Um, and so in a way, I was sort of like, okay, now I'm going to meet some nurses that understand addiction and maybe are in this with me. But I was also sort of embarrassed because I thought, well, you know, what if there are nurses that were diverting drugs or, you know, doing things you see on TV, like slumped over in a hallway. And I didn't see myself that way, although I do now, because I, I realized that like, I was just as sick, if not sicker, because I was trying to hide it so much. And I was, you know, it was clearly really obvious to the people around me. It just, I was just in such denial. And um, so this was, yeah, almost four years ago. Um, but I think what really was the turning point for me was it wasn't all these consequences, right? It wasn't the DUI. It wasn't losing all the jobs. It wasn't getting reported to the nursing commission. And you would think that someone would really turn around after all of that. But um, I took a year off of work from, you know, working as a nurse. And I say I took a year off, but really what I did was I gave up. Um, I became suicidal. I became extremely, extremely depressed, like just swallowed by anxiety. I felt like it was over for me. Like I had just come to the end. You know, I had run out of chances and I was just riddled with guilt and shame and so much shame. I just, I never thought I would crawl out from under all of the shame. So during this year that I wasn't working as a nurse, you know, I was doing little odd jobs for my parents and I was extremely depressed. Uh, I ended up hospitalized in a psychiatric facility for suicidal ideation. Um, I was basically detained against my will um, to protect myself um, from self-harm. I was also pretty manic and um, by most standards, a little crazy. 
and I don't use that word lately, but I was very sick. I hadn't been sleeping or eating. You know, I just, I turned into this person that sort of ruminated on these issues to the point of my own demise. And so I think really the turning point was um, hitting that psych ward, knowing that I was there because I was ready to take my own life. And I remember sitting in the windowsill. I was in a psych ward up near Seattle and it, they had these big giant windowsills that you could actually sit in and they overlooked the city. And I, all I had was a Bible. And of course it was soft because they didn't let me have anything hard. And I remember sitting in the windowsill, like reading the entire book of Proverbs because there was some quotes in there about women in, in faith. And I just remember looking out thinking like, how did I get here, God? Like, this is really, this is me. This is me sitting in a windowsill of a psych ward wearing spice colored scrubs, you know, like basically a padded room where someone comes and shines a light on me every 15 minutes to make sure I haven't done something to harm myself. And 10 days I was there. And, and that was um, every hour by hour I counted. And um, I remember talking to the nurses and trying to convince them that I was the nurse too. And they were like, mm -hmm, yeah, okay. Yeah. Did you take your meds? <laughs> um, so it was a really hard time. Um, and when I got out, of course, I couldn't get a nursing job. So after like 15 years as a registered nurse, I took a minimum wage job at the mall during the holidays at Macy's selling bras. And everybody I knew in the small town I live in had to buy some bras during that time. So it was like, here's my story. Just like, what are you doing here? Why are you working at the mall? You know, doctors I had worked alongside, nurses I had worked alongside. Um, I'm barely making my bills because I'm, I, you know, I have a lifestyle not adjusted to minimum wage. I don't know how to work a cash register. I don't know how to sell a damn bra to save my life. You know, I'm working with 19 year olds who can completely outdo me at everything. And I was basically not drinking, but I was I was so mentally ill and I was just sort of frozen in this sort of paralyzed state where I didn't know what to do with myself. Um, like, how do you move on from all this? I knew I was in big trouble, but I didn't know how to face it. I didn't want to face the nursing commission. I just let it sit the way it was. And at one point I even called up the state and, and asked if I could surrender my nursing license because I was just so beside myself. And they were like, no, you can't surrender. I mean, you've been a nurse for what I think at the time it was like 16 years and I had basically, a, you know, a pretty spotless record. And they were like, no, that's, you have to face this. And so I got in front of a really great nurse practitioner that was like, you can do this. Like you, you know, what's stopping you from just getting some recovery and facing this. And um, through time, I realized that you know, there was a light at the end. There was a way out. Um, but I knew that involved me sort of radically accepting the fact that I had to get sober and stay sober. Um, and so I started reading books and, you know, stories are so impactful. And I can see like, you know, um, JR's book sort of coming across the screen. And I, I have to say like, I read a quote from the Nagowski sisters who wrote the book Burnout, and they say, stories go where science can't. And I 1000% believe that because, you know, so many doctors and therapists and people can tell you and 
you know, your family can tell you. But once in a while you come across a story, whether spoken or you read it or you listen to podcasts and you're like, oh, my gosh, like that's me. Right. That's my story. Or I felt that way. And it sort of pushes you forward. And I read some books, you know, from some women that I identified with simply from their emotions, not so much that they were like me. You know, um, I don't have an Ivy League degree from Harvard, but I read The Recovering by Leslie Jameson and um, some other really good books. And I I remember thinking, why the, why the hell do I think I'm too good to go sit in a church basement and face Alcoholics Anonymous? Like what? And so I started going and um, it saved my life, you know, hearing my story and the radical honesty of the people, you know, and how they just embrace you um, no matter what, like no matter what you are, you're accepted and you're loved and someone has been there and done that. And um, so I, yeah, like I said, AA saved my life and I probably went, gosh, almost daily for the first two years of sobriety before I finally branched out into sort of um, open forum meetings when I had sort of, you know, some ground under me when I felt like, you know, I'd worked the steps with a sponsor and I, I had some solid recovery and I wanted to kind of branch out and have some other, just some other conversations basically and, and work out of some other books besides the big book and, and hear some other theories and stories. And I was ready to sort of evolve in my recovery. So, um, here I am now and uh, pretty solid in my recovery and doing some really cool things. Um, I did get back into nursing. I, I got a job after a million years working medical nursing. I got a job in a psychiatric facility and I thought, hmm, well, I've been to one, so I could probably figure this out. And it wasn't so much that as much as it was like I had the empathy and the understanding you know, that's a type of work that is a calling, you know, it's a calling on top of calling, you know, so it takes sort of like a unicorn to do psychiatric nursing because it's not glamorous. It's not sexy. Uh, you, you know, you don't get a lot of press for that. There's no show like ER where it's like the psych ward, you know, <laughs> um, here's me in a padded room covered with feces saving lives. No, that you don't see. That's not a show. Um, so I got a job at a psychiatric facility for people in crisis, essentially like I was. And I started out on call. You know, they gave me a chance despite the fact that I had a pretty tattered, uh, you know, pass. And I had these red letters on my license and I was going to be in this monitoring program. And um, I progressed from on call to full time to now where I am actually the director of nursing of one of the inpatient programs. And I um, actually opened a program last year. So it's been about a year and a half. Uh, I run a long-term psychiatric inpatient program. And um, gosh, it's such a, it's such a fucking gift. I mean, it's almost unbelievable like that this is where I am now from where I was. Um, and so it's just it's, I, I couldn't, I could not have gotten here without the recovery circles that I was in. And of course, you know, my higher power is God and, you know, I hit my knees. And so I just, you know, we all say that we're grateful, but I, I'm in a place where I freaking love my life. And um, 
So I'm, I get to do some really cool things with my recovery too. Wow. Are you still in the, uh, are you still in the being monitored? I, I know yes. It's like a five-year program. Yep. So yeah. A year left. Yep. So random UAs. So I have this app on my phone and I check in every day and I report the meetings I go to. My boss fills out a report on me. It's like drug court. I mean, and they mean business. Like if you slip up, you are pulled from your job until you can prove that you're clean. And at first I was sort of resentful. I was like, why am I still doing this? But it works, right? And what I've learned about, you know, as I study addiction medicine in the work that I do now, it takes about five years for people to get to what they consider long-term recovery. Um, and it also helps people to have agreed upon a plan in the beginning. Like you will UA, and if you are positive for drugs or alcohol, you will be removed from your job. And the person signs off and says, yes, this is my contract. I agree. You know, your friends and family, they understand and, and that's your life. And so it sort of works. And, and I get that now. Um, and I've met some freaking amazing people. Um, I would put my money on a sober nurse any day, right? Because those fucking people show up and um, I am now a hiring manager and I, you know, when people talk about being in recovery, I, I zoom right in because I, I know that we show up. That is what we are taught to do. And that's what we do. That's mm -hmm. amazing. I mean, I, I'm a graduate of drug court, so I know what you're talking about. Drug court alum. Yeah. I mean, it gave me the accountability and the, uh, the motivation mm -hmm. to get my shit straight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And from when I heard people talk about drug court and they speak really highly of it, even though it was probably some of the more brutal, the more brutal time in their life. Um, it just makes me sort of proud that I am going to say that I graduated from something like that, even though, you know, if I slip up, I just lose my job and I get in big trouble, I, but I don't go to jail. Um, but from where I was at emotionally, I felt like worse than jail. I mean, it was, you know, my livelihood, my identity, everything. That's what addiction does to us. Yeah. It breaks us down piece by piece. Yeah, I was, I, I, you know, and I, so today I do a couple things to sort of give back. Um, I'm part of a group called the Sober Mom Squad. They, you know, it's, it's any, woman who, or anybody who identifies as a woman who also identifies as a mom, I'm a stepmom. Um, my husband has three boys. And so I host meetings for them. And what I say is like, if there's this tree where you, you know, there's branches and, and sort of like parts of your life where you could ruin, like I fell out of the tree and hit every branch before I got recover got to recovery. I was financially ruined, emotionally ruined, physically ruined, my career was ruined. I was just a huge mess. Like I, but I, I had to go through all these consequences to, to come to the realization that I, I had to get sober. Like I, I just had to, I don't know why I was so stubborn, but that's, you know, so when I, when I lead meetings, I try to convey to women, like, 
you know, you can be a gray area drinker or you can be severe. It doesn't even matter. Like the things that this does to us, the things that addiction will do uh, are just unbelievable. Like you will become someone that you just cannot recognize. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I mean, that's how I was at the end. I remember when I, when I first started dabbling in, in drugs, it was like, uh, you know, I thought I, I, I set ground rules. Like, I'll never do this. I'll never do that. I'll never do it. Like, I'll, I'll never steal. You know, <laughs> if I don't have the money, I just won't use. All that went out the window. <laughs> and at the end, I'm in Walmart boosting everything inside. Yeah, I'm carrying in fake urine. I mean, yeah. warmed up that I, you know, just yeah. things. The things yeah, yeah. that I would do. And yeah. I was... I could not stop drinking and it. I just, so I kind of feel like if I can do it, like anybody can do it. And I know we all say that, but wine was literally my best friend. You know, I was, I'm embarrassed to admit that, but that was my whole, like it was the most important thing in my life. And so, uh, but I am so much happier now and I get to do some really cool things. Um, I recently started writing a column for the sober curator, which is, an online free lifestyle magazine for people in recovery. And it's sort of like um, a whole bunch of resources as well as pop culture, as well as fun. Um, You know, there's information on Quitlet and podcasts. There's, you know, a little bit more serious things. There's some meditation information and just, you know, some of the modalities that we use for recovery, but there's also stuff on mocktails and NA beers and, um, there's, you know, there's, a, they do a, a movie night and just all these different fun things to, to sort of bring in the recovery community and show that we can live again and that can be fun. Um, and so a lot of sober creatives contribute to it. And it's just been such a fun experience. I write a column called Walk Your Talk, which is, um, sort of like fashion and sobriety, um, And I write it because a big part of why this is going to sound really bad, but I'm going to be totally honest. As a woman, I didn't want to give up the nightlife. I didn't want to give up the idea that I could go out and sort of see and be seen. You know, I wanted still that bright lights, big city, the glamour of it. And I felt like if I got sober, my whole social life was going to go away. I would have no reason to ever get dressed up or go anywhere. I was never going to be invited anywhere. You know, I was going to live this sort of humdrum, boring life with no friends. Um, I wasn't going to be able to ever like put a cool outfit together and all those things that were super important to me that I really loved. And when I, when I got sober and I really started to find myself again, I realized, and this is sort of the premise for the column, is that I'm just getting ready for my own life now. You know, I, I stopped getting ready for the bar scene and that part of my life. And now I get ready to just show up for myself. And that can be equally as fascinating and as fun and um, the social events. And the it's just so amazing. So I really want other women to understand men to understand that like there can be such a beautiful life after sobriety and 
you can still dress yourself and, you know, fancy up and go to events and, and really show up for yourself in that way, you know? So it's been really fun. I know. I think I've done more things in my recovery than I did in the last 20 years in my addiction. I've been mm -hmm. skydiving, sailing, surfing, uh, whitewater rafting. You know, we have such a great uh, local recovery community. They're mm -hmm. always down to do whatever. I'm like, yeah, let's get a group of 20 of us and go do this. And I love it. On. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <clears throat> When I when I started looking at the sober curator, I was thinking like, this is so cool. Like, how can I meet some of these people? And I really got sort of I, I started fantasizing about like these sober things that I could do and events and people I could meet. And um, because I'm a pretty extroverted person and I really like to socialize and I, I love to meet new people. And so I reached out to the editor and um, her name is Elise Bryson. And I said, you know, I just love this magazine and like, what could I do? And, and I was sort of thinking she might do like a sober spotlight on me, which is what is part of the, there's a column on, you know, sort of interviewing people in recovery. And she had said, well, there's an open column that was started and, you know, no one has really picked it up and you could, you could do that. And I said, well, the only thing I'm really good at, like, I'm, I'm not an artist, you know, I'm a nurse, I'm very sciencey but one thing I know a lot about is fashion. And she was like, there you go. That's it. That's the column. And um, she happens to live in Seattle, which is not too far from me. So, you know, and you know, when you meet someone in recovery that you just click, like click with instantly, you just know, like, like that's my girl. And so I just, it felt right to, to do this. And so I've been writing the column for the last I don't know, four months, five months or so. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's been fun. And and like you said, I get to do things sober. I have way more of a social life than I did when I was drinking because I was such a mess. And like in the end, no one wanted to invite me anywhere anyways. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, so my life is, it's full now and I get to, I get to show up and that is really cool. It's one of the beautiful things about recovery. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So what is the uh, release frequency? How often do you guys release uh, episodes or I don't know. If I, episodes probably not the right word. Yeah. Yeah. I write my column monthly. Um, right now, the entire Sober Curator site is being updated. So they're going to a new format that's that's quicker and it's um, it's a little bit more intuitive and it, it's basically upgraded. It's better technology, a better format, um, and you know it'll be easier to find things. And so the, the whole site's being updated, and I think it should be done in the next week or so. And then my November column will come out. Um, but I just write it monthly. I, I imagine I could contribute more, but, you know, I work full time and I'm doing this, you know, program for nurses. And I also am leading meetings. And this is, you know, I try not to spread myself too thin. So and the other piece to it is that so I want to show fashion. Right. So I have to take pictures and I'm trying to photograph this, the clothes, but I'm the photographer and the model. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know what I'm doing. So 
You know, here's me fumbling. The point is to show the clothes, but you know, this is just me doing this as a, a sort of a volunteer thing. So I don't have anybody to, you know, help me. And my husband's certainly not going to stand around and take my photo. He might take one really ugly one and then walk away because he's <laughs> game and he'll lead, leave me with like the world's ugliest picture. So I'm taking my own photos, wearing my own clothes, right? I'm just grabbing out of my closet and putting stuff on and it's, you know, it's sort of amateur, but you know, I love it. And I'm trying to show people you can have fun in sobriety. And also we change so much through the course of our recovery. I don't know about you, but I, when I first got sober, I was like, I don't even know what my style is. Like, who am I? You know, I, I felt like, I looked at my clothes and I was like, I wouldn't wear that. Like, what are you, some kind of bar slut? No, you can't wear, I mean, my whole sense of self was weird. You know, my taste in music was weird. My appearance, everything about me. And so I changed so rapidly that um, I really feel like the way we dress is sort of a, a pre, like a representation of that. And so I kind of, I find it to be a nice creative way to kind of show my progress and my changes throughout my recovery. Okay. <laughs> Two dudes who are sitting there like, uh-huh, yeah, we just have a t-shirt. Right, right. Yeah. It took me all of two, two minutes to find this shirt for this show. I mean, how did you pick out those accessories? I just. Yeah. I need to know it was tough. It was tough. I hear you. I hear you. No, but I can I can agree with with the whole changing and I mean I still listen to weird music and I feel like I'm still kind of a weird person <laughs> even after almost seven years. But yeah, I I connect with the with the piece that you were talking about there about just like finding your identity, figuring out who you are, you know, with with the drugs and the alcohol out of the picture. It's like who am I? Um, you know, like when I when I first got clean. I had mm -hmm. all this free time, you know, I had lost yeah. my job and, and, yeah. you know, all I was doing was going to meetings and it's like, okay, what, what do I do now? What do I, you know, I, I don't have any hobbies because my only hobby before was getting high. Like, what do I do now? What do, <laughs> what do I like? You know? So there's like that whole thing of like discovering yourself and figuring mm -hmm. out what you like and don't like. And, and like you said, it, it, it really is. And I think that's part of the reason that so many of us use like, the phoenix is is a symbol because it's like that rebirth and we it, we get to start over we get to figure out what what we want to do with our lives yeah yeah and i think it's a little different for women because you know unfortunately we live in a world where so much is for women is sort of based on like how you wear your hair your makeup or your clothes or what have you and not that appearance is is everything it's it's not but you know they say like fashion is instant language and you know, I think for women, the way that we dress and put ourselves together can be sort of more demonstrative of how we show up in the world. Um, I know my husband has 8,000 t-shirts and every day it's like black or blue or black or blue. Um, but I wear completely different things all the time. And I go through different phases where I'm like, I think I'm kind of like this, or I think I'm kind of like this. Uh, but a lot of it's just finding myself because I think I drank for the better part of a decade and a half. And by the time I got sober, 
I didn't know who the hell I was. Um, and I, my life revolved around the bar scene and, you know, the things you wear and the, the way that you show up for yourself, you know, is all different in that, especially for women, you know, when you're getting all ready for the nightlife. Um, and so it's also been kind of fun for me because I'm a nurse, you know, I work in a psychiatric facility. It's not like I get to glam it up a whole lot. And the work that I do is very serious. And I talk about mental health and addiction and medications and treatment and things for a living. So I, I get to focus on something sort of fun and frivolous in my free time. And that's nice for me. Yeah. Working at a hospital, I get to wear scrubs for 40 hours out of the week. So I show up in shorts and a t-shirt and flip-flops. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not super glamorous. Yeah. I, but you're right. You, you coming out, coming, going in, going, coming out of uh, addiction, you don't know who you are anymore. I, I mean, I struggled to find, find uh, hot new hobbies because my old hobbies all revolved around bars, shooting pool and bars and, and playing spades with my friends, drinking beer. So I've had to pretty much reinvent myself and find things that I, I really enjoy doing. And you yeah. know, I found that uh, through the community, it really helped. I mean, when I was in early sobriety, you know, I was sitting around just doing the meetings and nothing else. I was afraid to go out. And then, uh, and then I, I took a chance and volunteered for a, a, a veteran sea kayaking class and totally enjoyed it. You know, so I'm, I'm signing up for like everything that they, they offer and I'm, I'm meeting other people, you know, some clean, some still out there, but you know, I'm bonding and making new friends. So that's really helped me. I love that. You know, and, and like, the willingness to meet new people and branch out in sobriety has sort of spread into my, the rest of my life as well. My, my husband is also a veteran and we recently hosted a little neighborhood gathering, like open house. Like if you're a veteran and you live in this neighborhood, come over. We want to know you. We just want to make sure we're here to support you. Like we can't do this alone, you know? And those are things like I would have never been that person had I not uh, found recovery and and sort of the beauty of building a community um, because I couldn't have gotten sober alone. And so now I face big problems by, you know, turning to the group and whether it's mental health or addiction or just, you know, um, things like what veterans go through, you know, I'm more likely to reach out and say, let's do this together because sobriety and recovery has taught me so much about, how valuable the community is. I mean, the, your community will save you, you know? Yeah. Especially true with vets. I mean, we lose 22 a day to suicide. Yep. And the, the scary part about that is over, over half of that, half of them aren't in any type of treatment. I mean, if they're not going to the VA, then they're, they're definitely not going anywhere else. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's a whole bunch of reasons. I mean, they say there's a lack of trust, you know, I mean, I, I've dealt I, I've dealt with a lot of it personally, you know, mm -hmm. in my own treatment. And it's like, uh, you know, I've been through like five shrinks over the last you know five years. And it's like, you know, they keep throwing me and throwing new ones in there. I'm like, well, how am I supposed to bond with them to open up to trust them? 
with yeah. uh, holding back, you know, and that's that's uh, what the reason was for my uh, my veteran spiritual retreat this weekend was to talk about stuff like that moral injury. And yeah, you know, it worked out really well. That's awesome. I, I love that. Yeah, I think if we, you know, the the power of a community and I I still to this day I, I go to Sober Mom Squad and I also joined another group called the Luckiest Club. And that is um those meetings are online. Um I'm not sure if you've heard of Laura McCowan's book, We Are the Luckiest, mm. but she started a sobriety group that is um you you do pay for it, but it's a small amount of money. But there's like four meetings a day, seven days a week. And um, there's hundreds of people in these meetings. And I've gotten a chance to not only go to meetings all throughout the pandemic, but also to meet people in real life that I've met online. And that's been super cool. Um, same with the Sober Mom Squad. It's, you know, it's the internet, but ultimately I'm meeting people. You know, I I started an Instagram page um at the beginning of the pandemic, I didn't really know how to use Instagram, <laughs> but I, you know, I started a page and I decided I'm going to recover out loud. I'm going to just go out loud with this. Um, you know, my story is super shameful, but I also can't change it. Right. Like I'm here now. It happened. And I, I can't change what I did. All I can do is change how I tackle it now. And so on my Instagram page, I just put, you know, I, not too much, not like, you know, like, like oversharing, but I make sure that I put it out there that I'm sober and that I'm a sober advocate and that I, you know, of course I write for the sober curator, but it just really helps with stigma, I think. And it helps me to overcome my own team. Like, like I said, like, this is who I am, you know, um, this is, this is what I did. This is my past. And this is me sort of living with it now and reinventing myself. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, you had to go through what you went through just to become who you are today. I mean, I'm in way, in some ways I'm kind of grateful for, you know, my past because yeah. I never would have found this better version of myself if I didn't go through what I went through. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, to say I would do it all ago over again is a tiny bit of a stretch, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I love the person that I am becoming. You know, I show up for myself. I am honest, legit. You know, I am accountable. Um, I, I think my boss even said the other day he could trust me implicitly, and I, I those are things that no one says about me in active addiction. And, um, you know, I'm I'm there for my family and my friends and. I've just become a more true version of myself that I would have never, I would have never gotten here. And I would have never entered the field of mental health as a nurse either. I mean, that was just something that was never on my radar. And I really feel like it's my calling and I love it now. Amazing. Yeah, that's absolutely incredible. And I'd be curious to know since you're in the field and I've asked a few other people this, um, you know, in the past, but what percentage of people that you see struggling with substance abuse disorder are also, I guess the, the terminology would be dual diagnosed or also have some sort of uh, mental health issue? 
90 percent yeah this guy maybe 97 <laughs> really i mean and it's so hard like what came first the chicken or the egg with a lot of it um are we self-medicating anxiety depression um you know paranoia delusions and it, it I, it's also on a spectrum too um some people's mental illness is completely <clears throat> chronic and persistent and crippling um and other people's um, just sort of interfere with their daily life. But either way, people will self-medicate, right? And I, when I look at addiction now, especially in behavioral health, not to normalize it, but I really feel like it's such a normal human reaction to self-soothe that it does not surprise me what people do to... Um, to calm themselves, right? When someone says, you know, I was living on the streets, I was this or that, and I used a lot of heroin. Of course you did. And so I approach addiction, like it's a very normal human thing to, to reach for something that either amps you up if you're down or or calms you down if you're overexcited, or maybe quiets the voices, or comforts you if you're sleeping on a cold street. So, yeah, it's it's easily ninety percent, maybe more, um, but it's really hard sometimes to tell what came first. Yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah. And, and there, you know, there's more research now to about the effects of drug and alcohol on the brain. So we can see, you know, especially like one thing that comes to mind is cannabis use in younger people, especially younger, young boys, um, you know, adolescents will see uh, use earlier in their life, maybe 10, 11, 12, and they have their first psychotic break by 17. And it's sort of like, how much did that THC play into um, cognitive changes or structural change, what, what, whatever it is, and maybe it sort of lowered the threshold of um, what was already pre-existing there. And um, so we, we, we have more studies now showing um, kind of what substances do. In fact, I'm this Friday, I'm taking an exam to become a certified addictions registered nurse. It's just an extra sort of feather in my cap. But I've been studying a lot of these things. It's really fascinating. Awesome. Yeah. What kind of uh, treatment programs do you have in your uh, your department? I mean, do you, I, do you guys deal with substance use disorder or is it just mental health? Just mental health. Just mental health. It's it's pretty hard to get credentialed for co-occurring. Um, but what we do is we, we screen, we sort of do a brief intervention and then we refer and get people outsourced to local treatment facilities where they can either um, go inpatient or outpatient. We don't typically take people who are really deep in the detox. Like we, you know, we have someone detox first before coming to us. Um, we'll take people sort of in like a mild withdrawal, but not like, you know, heavy, heavy detox. And so, but we do, you know, a lot of people, their relapse will, um, occur sort of simultaneously with them stopping their psych meds and or quitting, you know, therapy. And so we do 
talk about cessation of drugs and alcohol, even though we're not really there to treat that piece of it. And we hire people with lived experience that will share their information with clients. And so we do have a lot of people that are in recovery, staff that are in recovery. Okay. How is, uh, how is the, uh, the, I want to say, how's fentanyl, um, the epidemic uh, out there? It's horrible. It's horrible. Yeah, it's horrible out here. Horrible. It's it's in press pills. I mean, it's everywhere. And, um, you know, we, we see an unprecedented amount of overdoses. In fact, we are starting to give out Narcan kits where I work when people discharge even though they maybe don't even admit to drug use, but it's sort of like, if we know that someone is going to go live and experience homelessness, uh, we're just getting Narcan kits in to send home with them or wherever they're going um, because it's everywhere. Um, It's it's laced in so many things. I have heard of communities dispensing fentanyl test strips uh, for people in active addiction as sort of a method of harm reduction so they can test different substances to see. But I don't I don't have access to those. Um, but I, I think that wouldn't be a bad idea. We have a, a pretty, it's horrible. We have a horrible homeless uh, population in Olympia. It, like I imagine is everywhere. Yeah, it's everywhere. I mean, it's, 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 it's really bad out here too. Like lined streets, campers, people. Te- I mean, it's. I've never. I've lived in this community a while. I've never seen it like this. Hmm. It's it's heartbreaking. Yeah, I think the uh, the final number. I think the CDC numbers were ninety six thousand overdoses in the last year. Yeah. And so I'm I'm expecting it to go still go climb higher next year because. This fentanyl mm-hmm. is just out of out of control. It's everywhere. It's in everything. Um, it's really sad, and it's, it's really scary too, um, because even people who rarely use or are maybe going to just recreationally use after a party, you know, you hear it in the news, several celebrities die uh, after an event, and it's like maybe that was their once a year use, you know, and they're laced with fentanyl, and so it's really scary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Our ERs are packed, not only because of COVID, but because of substance use and mental health and um, the sort of overwhelming homeless population that we have right now. I can see that statistic. That's, just, yeah. Let me give a shout out to Jeff Vickers for the, the fast stats. Yeah. Author of The Sober Slogan. Nice. Is he our one viewer? <laughs> I'm just kidding. He's the one commenter. One, yeah, one commenter. Oh. <laughs> the other viewer might be my mom. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, Jeff. Uh, Jeff's doing uh, starting a podcast this Saturday, I believe, seven o'clock. Jeff. I love it. I think there. You know, the more open forums, podcasts lives, you know, stuff on social media. I think the addiction or the addiction, the recovery community is sort of rallying right now. And we're becoming quite the force, you know, the amount of people that are recovering out loud and that are speaking up 
um, I think it's just awesome to watch. You know, I was just sort of getting chills watching the the countdown to this when you were showing the recovery stories and people holding the signs. And that's why I keep showing up to things like this, because um, I love, love, love to see the recovery movement, you know, in social media and out there on on TV and just various platforms. So any podcast or book, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. I know if you think about it, um, the, the, the data I found was there, there are 23 active, uh, 23 million people in active recovery right now. If we ever got organized, we, we, Washington would not be able to ignore us. Yeah, exactly. I'm here for it. Yes. Yeah. The Sober Curator is really awesome because it's free. It's a lifestyle magazine and it just really, you know, if you're going to scroll, you might as well sit and scroll through some of that content. And there's some really fascinating creators and writers that contribute. And there's even a guy on there that um, does tastings for NA beers and sort of, you know, does a like kind of a breakdown of which ones are working and whatnot. And there's mocktail recipes. And I just think there's really nothing like it out there in terms of recovery magazines. There's the recovery today magazine. I mean, it's an online magazine, but I think it's mostly celebrities that they have on the cover or interview. And (laughs) I am excited for Brad Pitt, but like, I want to know some real folk. And so I, I love the concept that the, co- the sober curator brings that, that we can contribute as, you know, sort of civilians and um, that it brings that content out to everyone. I was, uh, I, I, I'm in recovery today magazine. I actually write an article for him now. <laughs> but do, I mean, uh, it's mostly famous people, right? You wrote a book. Do, you're somewhat of a public figure. We do, uh. Me and my my awesome admin Chrissy, we do the sober birthday shoutouts. It should be in the next uh, magazine. Isn't it mostly people that are already public figures that end up in the magazine, though? It you no um technically yes. I don't know how why why they why Rob wanted to interview me. I guess because the veteran angle, but he's a cool guy. We're gonna have him on here someday. Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, I I've, I subscribed to it a while ago, and I I think there's room for multiple sober magazines to be out there uh, for sure. But I did notice when I subscribed to that one that it was a lot of celebrities, and I thought, gosh, I'd really like to see something where I I sort of identify. Um, and so, but I think there's space for any of and all of it, just like in recovery. I think there's space for all types of recovery modalities someone is you're a low-key sober celebrity i love it he's your biggest fan that's my dog right there yeah we we actually uh i was in vegas for mobilized recovery in september and jeff was getting married and they were going to vegas so i took him and his uh his new wife out to dinner nice yeah, that's what's that's what I love about the sober community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, long lost brother now. Yes, and like you get to meet people in real life that you know are just like they become family, and you understand each other. And it's, I have better friends now in recovery than I ever had. Absolutely, 
You can leave your wallet behind. <laughs> yeah. You could just not bring your wallet. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yeah, that was funny about uh, recovery today. I was like. No, I mean, I think, like I said, there's space for all of it. I think it's all good. You know, I, I read the recovery today sometimes too. Um, but I also, I like the fact that there's um, some stories from people that, you know, that aren't necessarily a public figure. I mean, in a sense, you are kind of a public figure. You wrote a book and it, it seems to be selling quite well. You know, I think it's available at Target. That's big, right? Anything that's for sale at Target is like mainstream. Mm, I guess. <laughs> oh, there's also a recovery journal. It comes out. Nice. In Actually, I, I, I have a, a uh, subscription to them too. They, they interviewed one of my, uh, my, my, my mobilized recovery buddies last month. Nice. Marshall Mercer. Nice. So yeah, it's getting out there. Like, like you were saying, I'd rather hear about, about everyday people bouncing back and then, you know, some Hollywood celeb that, you know. Well, I mean, it's it's also good to have to show celebrities recovering, though, because that makes a huge impact on the general public to. I mean, look at Jessica Simpson. She just came out being four years sober and it is all over social media. Like mm -hmm. you would think that, you know, she just ran her first marathon and um, gave birth to quintuplets and has 40 years. Now. I mean, she's just like, is so big. And I, but I think it's great because people look up to celebrities and they, you know, they sort of glamorize them. And, um, and we, we need, we need that. We need to see that. I, I know it helps me because I always think when I, when I come across someone that I really admire, that is a public figure, um, they always end up being someone that is sober. And I always say like, you know, the sober people do the coolest shit, right? They're, they're the best actors and actresses, the funniest, the best songwriters. Um, so it is good to see that, I think, for sure. And, you know, some of my favorite celebrities are, are sober. <laughs> so at Recovery School, you can interview some normal people. <laughs> Some podunk civilians. <laughs> I guess, uh, in a way, it does make uh, the media does cover that more than say, yeah. you know, you or me. Oh yeah, I'm I'm, I'm hitting four years sobriety. Like okay. <laughs> yeah. Who cares? Said, yeah, I, I got thirty days. Okay. <laughs> From yeah. Right. Like I'm some washed up nurse from Olympia. Like nobody cares if I'm sober, right? You know, it's, <laughs> but um, I I love hearing other people's sober stories because it, it just gives me hope. And it also, you know, reminds me that um, we, we need each other's stories. We do. Absolutely. Brett, you want to do the, uh, your little uh, thing you do with the book? Oh, well, I, I was going to see if you wanted to announce it so we could have some more people jump in and possibly possibly win a copy of the Addiction Manifesto by the one and only world-famous pseudo-celebrity <laughs> J.R. Weaver. If you would like to be entered for a chance to win a copy here in just a couple of minutes, 
All you have to do is comment hashtag addiction manifesto in the comments and hit enter and you are in the drawing for a free copy of JR's book. So we'll wait a couple more minutes and um, give that away. And uh, yeah, thank you guys for sticking around through the episode and Kate, thank you for coming on today and sharing with us. It was absolutely incredible. Amazing story. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I might go to target and just buy your book. <laughs> or you could win a copy. You can win Do a copy. Actually, I would like to read it because my husband is a veteran and I think there there's a lot of, of, of good there that we, we would identify with. I mean, I see, uh, I'm blessed to work at the VA. I, I see the old B and so many vets coming mm -hmm. out today. I mean, we, I mean, you got to think we we've been at war for what twenty years now, mm -hmm. and there's so many vets coming back with issues. And it's like uh, I'm kind of glad that the VA is getting away from just prescribing pills to actually going with a recovery model type uh, treatments instead of mm -hmm. you know because that's how it was for so long. And yeah. You know, you, you're feeling this way here. Take these pills. Now they're now they're actually you know talking to you, and they got peer support. So it's mm -hmm. it's hopefully we've learned from the past. Yeah, and when we come out of this pandemic, we're gonna see just a huge wave too of people who struggled or struggle or are struggling now. Yeah, this pandemic's been rough on the recovery. Oh, I mean, I'm, I heard to, uh, I, oh, I can't, I don't want to say that, but uh, a friend of mine went to a meeting tonight and they said it, that place was packed. I'm like, oh, wow. That's, so now I get to go out there. Actually, I get to share my story Saturday at a local group and Thursday I'm doing something with um, Hazleton. Nice. Yeah. Uh, they're doing a book on veterans and I'm doing an interview with them. So that's I'm excited awesome. about that on Veterans Day. And I think that's my uh, my fourth year, my 1110. Is that 1110? Yeah. Uh, no, 1111. Okay. okay. Yeah. I remember saying, yeah, I'll never go. I'll, I'll be using drugs for the rest of my life. I remember that in my head back when I was uh, 30 days, 60 days sober. Yeah. I'm glad I was wrong. <laughs> I mean, I, I love life now. I get to meet cool people like you, Brad. I mean, everybody needs needs a friend with a big furry red beard. <laughs> everybody needs a friend that knows how to work their computer. <laughs> oh, stop. Uh, you want to do the uh, giveaway now? Yeah, let's do it. So far, there's only been four people that have entered, which uh, there's more than four people commenting in the comments. So I don't know what's going on, I guess. Well, I guess they don't want to it. win. No, yeah. some of them already. I already have it as well, so I, I didn't enter. Um, I entered, so I'm just trying to save on shipping. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, we were. All right, Roberto. Roberto. Congratulations, buddy. I'll get it mailed out to you this weekend. 
Awesome. I don't, I don't know why it swapped to a different view. I haven't seen him in the comments in the last few minutes. Um, I'll track him down. But thank you so much, Kate. I really enjoyed hearing your story and where you've been and what you're doing today. That's that's some good stuff right there. Thank you so much for having me on. It was great to meet you guys and, and to do this. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, it was great. Brett, let's hear that, hear that uh, sign off, man. Oh, all right. All right. We'll 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 get it done. <laughs> um, like I mentioned at the top of the show, I do also have another podcast and kind of going off of some of the topics that we've talked about tonight. My guest on Wednesday is Narcan Nate, and we talk about um, harm reduction and the importance of Narcan. So if that's a, a subject that you're interested in or you want to learn more about that, I would, uh, I'd ask you to, to take a listen to Wednesday's episode. Um, it'll be coming out Wednesday morning. Um, as always, we'll have the audio version of tonight's uh, live stream as well as the past live streams in, available in podcast form. Just search Recovery Revolution Live for that. Um, so if you're if you're busy and you can't sit down and watch the full length video on Facebook or wherever you can listen to it, pop your headphones in and, and still get some of that great recovery content. And as always, guys, remember progress, not perfection. Until next time, I'm Brett and this has been Recovery Revolution Live. <laughs>